Well, if you haven't heard, you're going to hear that this is the last sermon in the Gospel of John. Uh, many of you said, I feel kind of sad. It feels like, you know, something really sweet and really good is coming to an end. And I am sorrowful uh, with you. It's been a tremendous, joyful study, has it not? Week after week, studying, learning, hearing uh, from our Savior and Lord. You know, it's just the last uh, study in the Gospel of John. I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to do something. I don't know why I want to do it, but maybe we'll... Just to kind of, for my information or for our information, I want to know, like, um, how long you've been with us in our study of the Gospel of John. Many of you said, Pastor James, my first sermon that I heard from you was John 17. <coughs> James Lee was saying, when I came, it was John 6. Some of you said, yeah, the Good Shepherd. My first Sunday was a Good Shepherd sermon. So I'm kind of curious to know, um, maybe we'll do a, some standing this morning. How's that? Okay? Some standing and some gymnastics or something, some calisthenics. Um, so I'll ask you to stand. So for those of you, first sermon is chapters 18 through 21. So if it's your first Sunday here, you're standing up. And if you've joined us in the past maybe a year, I guess, if your first Sunday was somewhere between chapters 18 to 21, would you stand so that we won't see the newcomers of our church. There's Alex, <laughs> Justin, sisters, there's Eric, Stephanie, uh, Allison, and Joshua. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. So these are the new, new members of our church, Joe and Rachel. Joe and Rachel, what chapter? John 17. Great. Great. You came at a good time. <laughs> okay. So about 12 through 17, if you came, to chapter 12, um, you know, the begin, our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, all the way to the Lord's upper room discourse, and then the prayer. If you joined our, first Sunday was during that time, please stand. <coughs> Alright, okay, so you guys have been with us. John, when did you come, first Sunday? Chapter 17? Is that right? Wow, okay. Okay, great. Thank you, guys. Okay, a little further back, 7 through 11. 7 through 11, please stand. Okay, Laura, 7 through 11. Francis, 2003. So Pam, the choice. Right, good Mark and Nate, Miriam. You got converted around chapter <laughs> 7 or 8, right? Okay, great. Thank you. Please be seated. Okay, chapters 2 through 6. If you joined us earlier on, this is around 2002. Melissa standing up. This is when, before, most of us had children. Yo, Yoon, James, anyone else? 2 through 7. Kirk? Right around there? So if you're standing up, um, your wife should stand. <laughs> Sarah should stand as well. What's going on? Okay, great. Thank you. Now, this is for, you guys get extra credit, maybe some candy afterwards, or you guys go to the front of the line after as snacks. If you're here for the first sermon in the Gospel of John, uh, sometime in 2001, please stand. How many of you are here? Wow, pretty good. Well, stay standing, stay standing. Well, pretty good. Is that right? Yeah, you were there. I mean, if you missed that Sunday, it's okay. <laughs> you were there. Oh, I overslept that Sunday. That's okay. Great. Good to see you guys. Well, what a, well for all of us, what a joyful, uh, tremendous study it's been. Um, 
You know, we started in Cornerstone English Ministry in 1994, the Gospel of Matthew. I started that book because as a, as a young man trying to pattern my life after, after Pastor John MacArthur, I, I found out that his first book that he taught at Grace Community was the Gospel of Matthew. And I'd never been exposed to expository preaching, so I, I thought it's a good place to start. And he had a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. So I, that's very helpful, very important. And it wasn't until like chapter 16 of the Gospel of Matthew that I really understood expository. So if you heard any of my sermons pre-Matthew 16, please don't record it or you know dispense that information to others because I can't stand behind my exegesis up to that point. But starting Matthew 16, I started to understand the process of hermeneutics, interpreting scripture, exegesis, drawing out the principles from the word, uh, really outlining an exegetical outline, like consistent with the author's intended meaning, and then preaching it to the congregation and applying its truths around that time. After finishing, studying the Gospel of Matthew for four and a half, almost five years, <coughs> we had planted a church in the intervening time and wanted to study on the church. And First Timothy is really God's manual on the local church. 1 Timothy 3.15, I write these things to you so that you might understand and know how to conduct yourselves in the house of God. And really, 1 Timothy has so much about the local church, right? Has uh, issue, teachings about men and women's roles, about the qualifications for elders and deacons, and how to be a good minister of Christ, and how to honor elders, and how to take care of those, and how to just... Uh, uh, be a good employee, good parents in the home, and on all of those issues. We spent 1.5 years in, the, in First Timothy. <laughs> Afterwards, around that time, we, we actually took a poll, what book should we study next? And over 30% of the members of Cornerstone at that time said, let's study First Corinthians, or let's study Romans, or a few of you said, let's study Revelation. Are you crazy? But you asked me to study <laughs> Revelation. Uh, we would be in like chapter 4 <laughs> if we were going through Revelation. And we debated back and forth on what book to tackle next. And I decided to go back to the Gospel of John. And some of you were wondering why. Pastor James, we spent over five years in the Gospel of Matthew. We only spent a year and a half in Timothy. We're going back to the Gospels. We're kind of going backwards. We should be going forward. Maybe Acts or the Epistles. Well, we chose the Gospel of John <coughs> for these reasons. I wanted to put the life of Christ before my eyes. And I wanted to put the life of Christ before the eyes of our church people, of our, of our body, of our local church. Because I'm a young pastor and what I need is to see Christ. What I need is to see the example of Christ, hear His words, be humbled by His, by His standard of life, humbled by His ministry. And what we needed as a young congregation was also to see the beauty of Christ's life and ministry before us, and the centrality of the cross, and the power of His resurrection, and His ascension, and giving us that final commission. That is what we desperately needed. We, I wanted to study Christ instead of studying about Christ. And I'm not undermining the epistles at all. I'm not relegating to a second class a status in any, any sense. But really, there is, the, there is a power of the gospel. That's why there's four gospels. Four accounts of the life of Christ. Because there's something to be said about directly studying His words and studying His life. I had a mustard seed of faith. But I didn't know much about Christ. 
I didn't know much about his life and ministry, his teachings. So I wanted to learn these things. And I wanted us to learn these things. So we endeavored to go back to the Gospel of John. Secondly, I wanted to kind of earn my stripes as an expositor. Really, it is so much harder to preach through a narrative. The flock shepherds are understanding that going through Genesis. Much more difficult, is it not? Studying a narrative rather than an epistle, where it's just propositional truths, didactic teaching. It almost outlines itself. It's just word study, grammar, line diagram, and it kind of presents the truth in itself. But a narrative... As so many different genres within it, there is description, historical context, there is prophecy, there is didactic teaching, sermonic information, sermonic instruction, and there is this dialogue and discourse between Christ and all these different people. <coughs> Narratives, especially the Gospels, present a unique challenge to a student of the Bible. And I wanted to, as a young man, tackle uh, these things, these issues, so that later on, I would be much more well, well equipped to study the scriptures. And in the Gospels, they're really Old Testament scriptures, right? I mean, to study the Gospel of John, we've gone to Exodus, we've gone to Psalms, we've gone to Isaiah. Remember that study in Daniel 9, where I lost two-thirds of you, right? We were forced to go into Old Testament. We're forced to go into Old Testament culture, history, tradition, Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles, right? Uh, Samaritans. <laughs> all those issues because really it is an Old Testament book presenting a greater challenge for the student of the Bible and it's, it's challenging because just the depth of spiritual truths that are truth that are in the, in the book of John I mean the, the, the word pictures of Lamb of God bread of life light of the world remember when Christ said in John 10.30 and they responded by picking up stones that's a not, not a very uh, seeker-sensitive uh, sermon there when he said, Before Abraham, I am. I am the eternal one. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. You are the branches. Sending of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter, the high priestly prayer of John 17. I mean, these are uh, spiritual truths without bottom. You can't, there is no end to its depth. And it is very intimidating in my in the process of my studying the Gospel of John, um, two pastors that I respect, actually three, emailed me, and one said, James, I want to tackle the Gospel of John. Can you convince me to do it? Because I am at the, you know, at the foot of this mountain, and it is intimidating. Another seasoned pastor emailed me, James, I want to endeavor to serve the Gospel of John as well. Can you help me? Can you give me some insights? Because it is a daunting task. You know, I was kind of naive uh, five and a half years ago. I really didn't know what I was getting into. The Gospel of John, you know, that's what you tell young believers to read. I was just kind of studying and it'd be easy. I had no idea what I was getting into. I now know what a monumental task it is. And these pastors are way ahead of me because they understand, they understand just the, the complexities that are involved in studying the Gospel of John. So I wanted to kind of challenge myself, earn my stripes, if you will. And in that selfish way, I chose the Gospel of John. Maybe the, maybe the final third reason was that the, that the foundation of Cornerstone, I didn't want it to be doctrine. Does that make sense? I didn't want theology be to, the, to be the foundation of, of Cornerstone. I didn't want it to be the driving engine of our church. I wanted to be 
the life and doctrine of Jesus Christ. I didn't want my heart to be moved by just principles or just like principles from scripture or, or sentences or doctrinal ideas. I wanted my heart to be moved to obedience to God and to lift high the cross and all I do and all I say to the end by the life and doctrine of the living Christ, the risen Lamb. And likewise with our body. I didn't want our churches to be orthodox, the holy huddle, we know the truth, we have pride because we have right doctrine, and we become inwardly focused, and we live for our own holiness. That would have just, um, just discouraged me to no, no end. I wanted to study together the beautiful life of Christ, so that what moves us is not dead orthodoxy, but a living, vibrant relationship with the Christ as described in the scriptures. So that was uh, my motivation in studying the Gospel of John, together with all of you, that Christ and the doctrine of Christ will be the foundation of our church. I talked to a pastor this week and he said, James, if I left my church, my church would die. And uh, my response was, I speak the truth from my heart. If I left Cornerstone, Cornerstone, they would be, you know, kind of sad for about three weeks, maybe four. <laughs> After the fourth week, they'll be like, let's go have lunch, right? <laughs> you know, are we going to play basketball or soccer, right? Why do I say that? Because the foundation of this ministry, foundation of this church is not a man. It's not a personality. It's not a group of people. It is the Word of God. As long as we have a godly man stand behind this pulpit and preach Christ, resolve to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified and proclaim the words of Christ, the church will, the church will be fine. Now, you guys miss me in a, in a sentimental way. Wow, he was a you know, funny, funny guy. You know, I, I like Pastor James. You know, he had a good outside shot or something. In that way, but really, for the, for the life of the church, no consequence. Because um, the, the anchor of this church is not, it's not me. It's not some individual. It's not a group of people. It's not some program. It's not some method. It's not some philosophy of ministry. The anchor, the foundation, the core of our church, the power of our Sunday services is the preaching of God's Word. I can say confidently, me not being here, really, it's, it's not a big deal as long as there's a man who will preach the truth. So with those convictions, we began our journey in the Gospel of John five and a half years ago, and it's been amazing. I'll share with you just a few of my highlights, a few studies that have <coughs> shaped my life, and I believe shaped our church on the past five and a half years of studying the Gospel of John. Um, we really hit our stride in John chapter six. That's where we really turned the corner. When we hit John twelve, I think we were just like riding the wave. But we want to go way back, and one sermon that I do remember, one study that I do remember is John 1.29, when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it was the first time, I believe, where the Word of God called us to just behold Christ. And if you remember, you were there some time out, just to behold Christ. That that's what we're doing on Sundays, in the Gospel of John. We're not, what, can, what should I do? We're not application-oriented or application-driven we're not self-driven. What drives us is we want to come on Sunday and behold Christ. And as we behold Christ, He changes us. That sanctification is 
God's work. It's Christ's work. It's the Holy Spirit's work as we behold Him. And that's what John the Baptist called the people to do. And that's what he was calling us to do. That's the first time where as a body we said, let's stop. Let's, let's, let's really work less and behold more. And saw the beauty of Christ. In John 3.30, <coughs> you don't know the background of this sermon. In John 3.30, I spent four days preparing this study. And on Saturday evening around 9 p.m., my computer crashed and I lost that sermon file. And nobody, I told nobody that except Bob and maybe someone else that was in that prayer meeting. I don't know who else it was. And I had to rewrite my sermon in a matter of a few hours. And I went in a whole different direction. (laughs) Why wouldn't you know? And it it went from an exposition of that passage to a more personal study on true success in ministry. True success in ministry, where John, John the Baptist says, I must decrease and Christ must increase, and tells us that true success in ministry is not about numbers, it's not about the size of the church, it's not about a building, it's not about influence or fame or notoriety, not at all. Really, true success in ministry is prayer. True success in life and ministry is holiness. True success in ministry is humility. And true success in ministry is decreasing becoming lowlier and lowlier so that Christ's fame would increase in one's life. In John 6.44, remember that sermon? Calvinism, Arminianism, and Biblical Christianity. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on that day. We said our pursuit is not to be a Calvinistic church. Our pursuit is not to refute Arminianism. Our pursuit is to be a Biblical congregation. To be believers who would defend the word, know the word of God, and defend its truths by the word of God, and so wherever the word of God teach, whatever the word of God teaches, we will stand on that principle, on that point, and we taught, we we discovered God's sovereignty in our salvation, that no one can come to Christ unless God first draws him, that I externally went to Christ because before that happening, He inwardly through the Holy Spirit drew me to Himself. <coughs> I had so many emails, so many responses, so many positive responses from so many of you saying, thank you Pastor James for that teaching. Revolutionizes my perspective on, on my testimony, on my life, on, on ministry, on my future. We moved on to John chapter 10 where Christ, Christ's self-description was, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, the hired hand runs away, and you know he's a hired hand, working minimum wage, because he runs away when he comes. But the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. This self-description will, I believe, forever uh, shape uh, the pastors, the elders, my life here in Cornerstone, where it's not about us. Ministry is not about me. A hired hand is all about, what do I get out of this? The good shepherd lays on his life to protect the flock from the wolf. For him, it's all about the flock. Care and love for the church. And the word good, we discovered there's two Greek words for good, agathos and kalos. Agathos is that objective, moral good. Christ didn't use that word to describe himself. He used kalos. It's the subjective good. It's, the, it's beautiful Right? It's idea of just attractive, subjectively beautiful, wonderful. Um, 
Christ says, I am that beautiful shepherd. Why? Because I do things from myself. I give you myself. John 12, 27-32, our Lord had entered Jerusalem for the final time. And within a week's time, He will give His life as a ransom for our sins. Throughout the Gospel of John, He told people, It is not my hour, it is not my time, my time, my hour has not come for my glory, for, my, for me to be glorified on the cross. In John 12, He said for the first time, Now my hour is near. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. If He had prayed this prayer, we are lost, hopeless, helpless, still in our sins. But He did not pray this, pray this prayer. It was a rhetorical question. His heart was trembling within himself, considering the prospect of drinking the cup of God's wrath. Yet he did not pray this prayer. He said, Father, glorify your name. Teaching us that the motivation of Christ going to the cross was not man-centered. It's not that like a rose trampled on the ground. You know, he thought of you, know, you most of all, right? Like The reason Jesus died was because he loved us so much that that was the compelling motivation for his death. It teaches us here. If it was just us, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. I mean, he loves us, but not that much. Right? Not enough to displease the Father. Right? His motivation for the cross was the glory of the Father. Not my will, your will be done. His prayer was, is there any other way? Because my will is not the cross. The elect, the, the church, they're not worth me displeasing you, for me to go to hell, for me to be forsaken by you. But what drove him to the cross was the glory of God. And the Father responds in an audible voice, I have glorified it and I'll glorify it again. Teaching us that the Father's grand motivation for all things is his own glory. That he is not an idolater. He's not a child-centered father. He's not centered on his son. He's not the church-centered father. He is a God-centered God. The God's passion for his glory. He does all things for, his, for himself. Jealous for his name. We discover that. And then, verse 32, Christ's prophecy. <coughs> Where Christ promises when he's lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. All men... He's talking about, the Greeks asked this question and that prompted his response. So when he says all people, here in this context he's talking about all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles. He promises that through the cross, he will draw people from all over the world to the cross and that he will save them. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That is why we go to Kazakhstan, that is why we go to Czech Republic, we go to Orange County. Because God promised all people, all kinds of people. Not just certain people, not certain ethnicity, no, all kinds. And that sermon was the Pat Tillman sermon, right? Pat Tillman could turn away from a $3.6 million contract to play Amer- football in the NFL. Some of that's your dream, that's your highest, that's winning the lottery. He turns away from that to serve his nation and give his life for his country. How much more? Where are the Christian Pat Tillmans? Where are the Pat Tillmans for Christ who will turn away this comfortable life in Orange County and all the parks to serve Christ in a hard place? And I, you know, Dale and Joan were telling me that that's one of the sermons that will really, uh, move their hearts. And many of you have said, 
that God used that study of God's glory and what that means to us. That God's glory, if it does not translate to evangelism and missions, it's all for naught. It's a false profession, false uh, uh, commitment to God's glory. Commitment to God's glory must translate into evangelism and missions. Because it did for Christ. And many of you said that God moved your hearts greater love for the lost, commitment to global missions through our study in John 12. We went to a few verses down and we did a several part study in verses 443. Uh, the Pharisees and authorities believed Christ but they would not confess it because of the fear of man. Right? That uh, enslaving uh, fear that grips all of us to different degrees in different areas. They loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. They loved to please man. They were more afraid of losing the, uh, of the pleasure of man, <coughs> the accolade, the fame of man, than the praise of God. So we, did, we looked at the two glories that compete in our hearts. Fear of God or fear of man. And every moment, every hour, every day, we choose one or the other. We choose to fear man or we choose to say, I'm going to fear God. These are life determining fears where we either live to pursue fearing God or we either live to pursue fearing man one or the other and then John 14 through 16 study the Holy Spirit how Christ gave (coughs) sent us the Holy Spirit but how are we filled with the Spirit it's not through some mystical being zapped you know, we're singing some songs or turn out the lights and we're praying and we get zapped by the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden we're walking in the Spirit. That's not how it works. As new covenant believers indwell with the Holy Spirit, we are filled with the Holy Spirit as we commit to spiritual disciplines. Our physical training is of some value, but spiritual training has value for many things. So believers must commit themselves to spiritual disciplines so that we might walk in the Holy Spirit. We highlighted five spiritual disciplines that we must commit to so that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit, walk in the Spirit. We must mortify sin. We can't play with sin. We can't toy with it. We can't coexist with sin. It's either the sin or us. Sin wants our souls. Sin wants to shipwreck our faith, destroy our testimony, and divide our family and destroy our church. Our response is war. We want to fight against sin and mortify it. Go for the jugular vein and kill sin wherever it's found. Second discipline is redeeming the time. Laziness. You know, God can use anyone except the lazy man or woman. God can't use you if you're lazy. And the importance of redeeming holy hour. You know, you fall asleep... You know, watching TV, that's okay. If you fall asleep at work, even that's kind of okay. But you fall asleep at a holy time like church service or Bible study time or prayer time. This is holy time. This is God's, God's time. We need to redeem above all time our time together as a church. We looked at the importance of the Word of God, discipline of being in the Word, discipline of prayer. And the final one, Maybe the most difficult one. If I were to if I were to take a poll and survey a church, I would say this is the issue that most of us, including myself, struggle with: one of true Christian friendship. 
four true, encouraging, God-honoring, heart-vulnerable friendships with fellow believers. That's a challenge. See, everything else is individual. And it, it kind of fits our Western mentality. Your business, my business. I'm going to mortify my sin, you mortify your sin. I'm going to work on my time, you work on your time. I'm going to pray, you pray. You know, my word, your word. But we realize what Francis was saying, iron sharpening iron. That we're saved individually, but God's will for us is that it's Jesus and us. We live together, we die together. Whatever happens, we belong to the Lord together. And God's idea is a community of believers and that we need one another for sanctification. That it's a corporate pursuit. It's not an individual pursuit. And that's what the challenge is. For us to develop Christian friendship. Where we're bound by love for Christ. And the pursuit of true holiness. Sociologists came out with a recent article saying how uh, 25% of Americans don't have friends. Right? And the other 25 can say they have one, maybe two friends at best. Rodham wrote that sociological book. It was a bestseller, Bowling Alone. That's a metaphor for how Americans live. Everybody bowls alone. They watch TV alone. They surf the web alone. Right? They live, they eat alone. They have no friends. And that has come into the church. Where these you know, mega churches, everybody comes alone. They watch a show. They drive home alone. And there is no one another Loving, forgiving, confessing, correcting, teaching, encouraging, spurring one another, one another doesn't exist. <coughs> it's a spiritual discipline that we must uh, form in our lives if we're going to be walking in the Spirit. And then we went to John 15. A lot of highlights, I know. John 15, where Christ said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from, from me, you can do nothing. And uh, we did a whole sermon on just those few words. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And how liberating that was for us. It wasn't oppressive. It wasn't the harsh truth. It was liberating. We can't do nothing apart from Christ. And so my only responsibility is to abide in Him. I don't have to succeed in prayer. I don't have to succeed in evangelism. I don't have to be an excellent minister. All I need to do is abide in Christ. And I can do that. And I will bear much fruit. You know, Joe Jung came to me afterwards. He was struggling in seminary. He was newly married. He was struggling in ministry at Cornerstone. He was kind of drowning. He was kind of sinking. And he said, Pastor James, thank you for that. Thank you for John 15. And Elaine was smiling right next to him, as she always does. And he was saying, that liberates me. That frees me. I have hope now. I'm facing midterms, but I have hope. Because all I have to do is abide in Christ and He will bear fruit in my life. And as He is going to missions, the verse that they're holding on to is John 15. That Christ is the vine, we are the branches, abide in Him. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. So what sustain, will sustain Him through winter in Czech Republic is John 15. And then John 17, the high priestly prayer. Probably the most impactful series we've ever had at Cornerstone. So many of you have said, John 17... Uh, Christ's prayer for, for me to be kept in the Word, for me to be sanctified, um, has been uh, the most tremendous study. Um, I've had the most response from John 17 than any other chapter that I've ever studied in my life. Individually and really corporately, God changed our church in John 17. It's almost like pre-17 and post-17. 
Right? <laughs> cornerstone before John 17 and cornerstone after John 17. Like, like, like Zenga changed. Right? <laughs> uh, friendships changed. Fellowship changed. Like there were less people coming out to play basketball. That's how much cornerstone changed. Right? Because some of you are just involved in ministry. More earnest pursuits in life. And then John 19, the cross of Christ. John 20, the resurrection. John 21, Peter's restoration. And so we're coming to an end. Last sermon, here we go. So let's go to our text of our last sermon. (laughs) Begin with a very familiar personal illustration. Um, A few months ago, we had our Cornerstone Basketball Developmental League. Many of you are part of that um, basketball league after every other week on Sundays. Uh, you know, there were like seven or eight teams, and I was part of a team, and we did okay, right? Not so bad that we get discouraged and depressed, but not so good that we make the playoffs. But we did just just right in the middle, but we didn't make the playoffs. So I resigned myself to just being a ref and just getting back at everyone who like who scored on me. I was just calling, blowing that whistle every opportunity I got, just out of spite. Um, well, the last game, the championship game, it's Brian's team against Gary's team. And Gary is 39 years old, right? And he cramps. And when you're cramping at 19, when you cramp at 29, it's a little hard. When you cramp at 39, you can't play anymore, right? So he turns to me as a ref, can you run for me? I'm like, of course. You know, I, got, I was hoping for this opportunity. Yeah, I want, love to play. No pressure for me because it's not my team. I'll just shoot and if I miss, whatever, right? As the oldest guy in the game, I just want to hold my own, do my best. I had an average game. I was okay. We're down by several points. We somehow stole the ball with like 20, 25 seconds left. We're down by one. Man, I'm like, this is like spot. This is sweet. It's turning out. And so with like 10 seconds left, I don't know why, they gave me the ball. I shot the ball and I missed. And somehow that like, that 19-year-old competitive like edge came out of me and I rebounded the ball and I just turned around in that split second. I was wide open underneath the basket for a layup. I make this, we win. I'm literally a one foot layup. I thought I was Kobe Bryant. <laughs> but I turned into Kwame Brown right there in that instant. I'm Kwame. And I missed this layup. And Peter Ron brought us back. And I missed that layup. That shot. And we lost the game. You know, I'm, I'm 36. I'm a pastor. It's just a basketball game. Not important. That's what I was telling myself, right? <laughs> man, driving home that night, I'm like, oh, man, you know, I'm playing the, come on, James, what's going on, right? That night, for several nights, it was like, man, that opportunity, right, man, right there. I was just right there. And I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, finish that opportunity. And, you know, I, I see when other guys, uh, quote-unquote, cho- choke in other games, in other sports and TV, I have much more compassion for them. Because I, I know, it's hard. You know, you just have the opportunity and you can't really predict what's going to happen. You have that opportunity and once it's gone, it's gone. You can't get it back. Well, that's what uh, Peter is feeling in John 21. Right? He missed that opportunity. It was really an opportunity for him to stand for Christ. How different things would have been 
If by that fire, you know, Peter's standing there and he's standing on the Sea of Galilee and watching Christ over a burning, burning coals. And he sees that fire, he remembers many nights before, he was also standing next to a fire. A whole different situation was different. Our Lord was being persecuted and, and tortured and he was warming himself. What's his opportunity to stand for Christ? He didn't know it, but he was there. And what if that servant girl came to him and you were with that man? And Peter said, I was. Do you know who he is? He is the Messiah. He is sent from God. This is his message. Why are you doing this to him? He is the Lord. He is your creator. Repent for your sins. Another would come along. So you're with him? Yes. I love Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's the Holy One of Israel. I am with Him. Another man comes to Him, so you admit you're with Christ. Yes. I am with Him. It was His opportunity to stand for Christ, and yet, He missed it. It went by Him, slipped through His fingers, and by the time He realized what He had done, it was too late. By that time, he had denied the Lord three times. All he could do is go outside and weep bitterly. Those denials, though, started a chain of events that led us to hear the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Denied the Lord three, three times. He does not know whether he should be here. <coughs> Our Lord directed the apostles to go to Galilee, and he will meet them there after he's risen. Peter, remember in our studies, is frustrated, he's impatient, he says, let's go out to fish. And the providence of, God's gracious providence of failure, they go out to fish all night and they catch nothing. They utterly, utterly fail in their endeavor to catch fish. They come back in the morning and they see a man walk along the shore of Galilee and, say, and he says to them, friends, have you caught any fish? They say, no. Throw the nets on the right side. They do. And as soon as they do, they catch a net full of fish. This happened in Luke chapter 5. And when, that, when it happened then, Peter didn't have complete faith in Christ. It was a man's faith. His response was, Away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. But in John 21, his faith is true. He understands his sinfulness. He understands his unworthiness to be in the presence of Christ. And yet because of his personal love for Jesus Christ, he puts on the outer cloak that he had taken off while he was fishing and he jumps in the water. He can't wait to be with Christ and he swims towards shore. What a beautiful picture. That's a picture that I, I can definitely identify with. I sin and I fail and I deny Christ. Yet, I, I do love Him and I want to run to Him. I want to swim to I want to be with Christ. And then we see him having breakfast our Lord turns to Peter and he asks him this three questions. Do you love me more than you love these men? These men love me. Do you love me more than these men love me? That's what you said last time. You have greater love for me than these men. Is that true? And you use the word agape, unconditional, <coughs> undying love for Christ. Peter says, I phileo love you. Do you agape love me? Simple. Not, okay, forget about if you love me more. Do you just agape love me? Peter can't say that. How can he say that? He denied the Lord. He missed his opportunity to show agape love for Christ. When that opportunity was given for him to show that he agape loved Christ, he denied the Lord for self-preservation. How can he, with a, 
with any kind of conscience say, Yes, Lord, I agape love you. He can't. He knows his heart. He's honest with himself. He knows who he is. He says, I phileo love you. So Christ condescends to Peter. Yes, do you phileo love me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo love you. And here in verse 18, the grace of Christ shines forth most blessedly. We see our Lord giving this continual grace to this apostle. Not only had Peter been forgiven, restored, commissioned, but he takes him back to that profession that he made in Luke 22-33. How he was ready to go to prison and to die for Christ. Jesus assures him, Peter, you said that, and that is what's going to happen. Because of your humble profession, this will be fulfilled. See, there's a direct link here. Peter said, Lord, you know all things. And the Lord is saying, yes, I do know all things. I know everything. I know that when you were young, verse 18, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. The expression here denotes freedom. Peter, you did as you pleased. Whatever you wanted, you did. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Really an idea, expression, uh, denoting uh, Peter's willingness to die for Christ. Stretching out his hands. He's not being forced to be dressed in a certain way. He is a willing participant to be dressed in a certain way. And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Indicating the kind of death that Peter will endure as an apostle of Christ because of his faith in Christ. Christ prophesied, yes, I know all things. And I know right now you have a phileo love me. But one day, you'll have another opportunity. You have another opportunity for that shot. And at that time, you're not going to blow it. You're not going to miss it because of your brokenness, your contriteness, because of your humility, because of your lowliness. When that opportunity comes, Peter, you're going to do good. You're going to do right. You're going to be faithful to your profession of love for me. And you will stretch out your hands. And they will take you where you do not want to go. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus told Peter that he would die as a martyr. (coughs) The Bible doesn't record Peter's death. But church history, church tradition tells us how Peter died. Eusebius, an early church father, cites the testimony of Clement, who says that Peter was crucified. Before he was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. His wife was crucified before him. As Peter watched her being led to death, Clement says, Peter called to her by name and said to her, Remember the Lord when it was his time to die on the cross because of his faith, being able to recant at any moment and he would be spared of such a cruel death. He would not recant. He saw his profession of faith in Christ, but yet he made one request, crucify me upside down so that no one would confuse the sinner Peter who was saved by the Lord and Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior 
who died as our substitute. So the upside down cross is not a satanic symbol, it's Peter's cross. Really, revealing again his lowliness, his humility, that the last thing he wants is for anyone to confuse his death on the cross with Christ's death on the cross. This is exactly what happened. And he was crucified upside down. Culmination of a life lived for Christ. Our Lord told them early on in the ministry, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against my account. Rejoice and be glad. Weary have it. Luke 6.22 Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on, on my behalf. You are blessed. Philippians 1.29 Paul add, added that it has been granted to us that you should not only believe in Christ, but suffer for Christ's sake. So in light of all these instructions, Peter, when he wrote to the brethren in 1 Peter 4.13 and when he wrote about suffering, this is what he wrote. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter heard these truths about the blessedness of suffering for Christ, testified it with his own words, the joy of suffering for Christ, and that's how he ended his life, in joy, rejoicing. For there's another opportunity to stand for Christ, and by God's grace he did not fail he was able to enjoy in, 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 the, in the joy of Christ suffer and die for Him. And so Christ's prophecy in John 21.19 This He said to show by what kind of death He was to glorify God. And after He said this to Him He said, follow Me. Follow Me. So we discovered through Peter's life the simple truth that God saved us from hell, but not from the cross. You see how warped American Christianity is? Do you see how distorted, unbiblical, how um, blasphemous this prosperity gospel of American Christianity compared to the gospel of Christ? The Bible is clear. God's from hell, but not from the cross. It is not... God saved us. Now, therefore, we are kept from suffering. We're kept from um, persecution. We're kept from the cross. No. The cross marks how we are to live as believers. He died so that we would be saved. We would be sanctified. That we would be glorified in heaven. But He didn't save us from being crucified. Luke 9.23 If any man would follow, come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross every day and follow me. Yes, the pleasures of the Christian life are coming, but not here. Yes, in the spiritual sense, the pleasures of, cro- of the cross are here. 
Like forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, communion with God, the privilege of prayer. Those spiritual blessings are here, but the physical blessings are on this side of eternity. The physical blessings are in the future with God in His kingdom. The physical joys we long for are over the horizon. The great tragedy of contemporary Christianity is that the cross is safely relegated to the distant past. (coughs) I think Piper said this, what it means to so many believers in America is that our Lord was soaked in blood so that we can soak in a jacuzzi. The bigger the tub, the more honor we have. So goes the prosperity gospel. And this is what Christ railed against along with Peter and Paul. They are wrong to think that Jesus died on the cross so that we might be rich. So that we might live in comfort. We might live in luxury. That we might now pursue our purpose and pursue the American dream. The cross is not merely an event in past history. It's the way of life for believers. We are to take up our cross daily. It is call, it's the call of the cross to come and die. And we joyfully go and we die. We give everything, even our lives, our families. We lay it all on the foot of the cross because of eternal joy that awaits us. The Christian life is a life on the cross. The cross is not merely a past place of substitution. It is a present place of daily execution. The execution of pride. Execution of boasting in ourselves. The execution of self-reliance. Execution of the love of self. Love of money. Love of status. And the love of praise of man. That is what the cross of Christ is to believers. And that is the gospel. We call people to die. So that they might live in heaven. We don't call people to come. So that they might enjoy life on earth. We learn that through Peter's life. Peter's suffering. And Peter's death. You know, if, if I'm running the gospel of John... It's a good thing I'm not. If I'm the Holy Spirit, it's a good thing I'm not. I would have ended it here. But John has further um, instruction for us. He wants to inform our hearts a little bit more. And he does so by, again, Peter's foot-in-the-mouth disease. Right? You know, Peter, he should have just stopped right here, Peter. But in humility, he continues to talk. And while he's listening to Christ restore him and enjoy the blessings of this restored communion and the restored discipleship called to follow him, he notices through his peripheral vision, Apostle John. And he wonders, okay, I'm going to get another opportunity. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die for Christ. As Christians are prone to do, we look sideways at other believers well, if I'm going to suffer, then he better suffer too. Right, if I'm going to deny myself, he better not get an easy, way, easy life. And so in that way, Christians become stumbling blocks to one another, right? We're supposed to carry the load together. We're to suffer together. But some Christians, they opt out. 
and they want to compromise. And so in that way, it stumbles us. Well, so maybe John was, I don't know what, what motivated Peter, but as he saw John, his question was, well, what about him? Is he going to suffer too? He better if I'm going to suffer. Is he going to die for you like I will? And our Lord's response is, what is it to you? All right, what will happen to John? What's it to you? You follow me. You follow me. <coughs> it is a lesson which every believer in every age should heart. Christ didn't reveal what happened to John. So secret things belong to the Lord. But the imperative, our priority is discipleship for us to follow Him. We must not be so deeply interested in God's secret counsel that we fail to pay attention to God's revealed will. So many believers want to find out what is not revealed that they neglect to obey what is revealed. So many believers are all into the date of Christ's return. Who is the Antichrist? What's his name? Is he from Europe? Is he from America? Are we going to have a 666 on our hands, on our foreheads, or is it a computer chip you know, embedded in our skin? What's going to happen? People, these things are not revealed. It's not for us to know. Secret things belong to God. What is it to you? What's important for us is for us to follow Christ. We can sit and debate and you know, split hairs until we're red in the face and not the the truth, because it is not revealed in Scripture, it's, no, no, it's of no profit to us. Our call in our lives is not to figure out any uh, Gnostic truth, any higher truth, interpret the white spaces of the Bible. Our call is to obey what is clearly revealed. And Christ said, what's it to you? You follow me. We have work to do. You have work of following Christ, of feeding lambs, shepherding sheep, taking care of the dear flock of Christ. We have so much work to do. We have so much before us that we need to do for Christ. Why waste that time? Why waste that energy in pursuing things that are not revealed in the Scripture? Let's be busy about Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's be in the thick of thick, thick things, not in the thick of thin things. And what is that? It is following Christ, obeying Him. Our Lord's admonition to Peter is noteworthy to us. That's why John concludes, there are many things that Christ did. If every one of them were to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that will be written. I mean, I could go on and on. I could write a thousand chapters about the life of Christ, His teachings. But this is sufficient for you. Things that are revealed here are sufficient for life and godliness. So instead of trying to find out what else did Jesus say, what else did He do? Our job is this is what He did. This is what He said. Now let's obey. Let's follow. And thus John ends his gospel here and in this way. Well, with this, our thrilling journey is now over. just want to thank my fellow elder, Bob, 
for your prayers, for your support. Uh, I could not do what, I'm, what I've done for the past five and a half years without uh, your just partnership in the ministry, your personal support, without you being a lover of God's Word, without you being someone that uh, is one in heart with wanting to proclaim and stand on Scripture. I thank you for that. I want to thank all my fellow pastors, Marcus, Jason, Joe Jung, and the seminarians, Josh and Joe. I want to thank all the flock shepherds, Francis, Gary, Mike, Huey, Eugene, and Dale Abroad. I want to thank you for your ministry. I cannot study the Gospel of John unless you are there in the front lines, shepherding the people. I mean, the work that you do, the micromanaged care, the day-in, day-out prayers, and the personal relationship that you're developing to care for the believers of the church allows me, allowed me, and allows me to plumb the depths of Scripture and present it Sunday after Sunday. I thank God for you. I thank you for your life and ministry. And I want to thank you, Cornerstone, from the first-time visitors here, and to all those who've been here from the beginning, John chapter 1. I want to thank you for, your, for, your, for praying for me, for your heart to hear God's word. No one in our history of Cornerstone nine years, and definitely in our five and a half years studying John, no one has ever complained about, the, the, about preaching. No one's ever said, man, that was too long. You know? No one's ever said, where are the stories? Like, no one's ever said, not enough jokes, right? Tell more jokes. Not enough stories. No one's ever said that. No one has ever come and grumbled about the Word of God proclaimed. Thankful to you. Thankful because the response has been, I praise God for the Word. The Word of God is powerful to me. I'm convicted. I want to change. I want to get serious about obeying Scripture now. And by your growth, your fervency for Christ's Word has encouraged me to all the more give of myself to shepherd the flock by studying God's Word and teaching God's Word. And above all, I want to thank Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 1.18, for giving me strength. For without Christ, all of this is not possible. If I have sinned against you, if I have offended you, that's all James Shin. But if I've done any good, if I've in any way encouraged you in ministry, I want you to know Christ deserves all the glory. Because He's done it all. Apart from Him, I can do nothing. So I thank Christ and His grace for His strength, for granting me strength to do this. May all glory go to Him. I can say with a clear conscience, under the mandate given to us in 2 Timothy 4.2, I have preached the Word. In season, out of season, I reproved you, rebuked you, exhorted you with complete patience and teaching. As Paul's example in Acts 20, he did not shrink from teaching you anything that was profitable. Likewise, I did not hold on anything that would be profitable to you in your faith. And Paul said in Acts 20, 26, that he was innocent of all blood because he did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Likewise, there was not a verse where I skipped over, I glossed over, or I cut out because I felt this was, these truths were too hard for, for the church. No. I have a clear conscience along with the elders, pastors, shepherds, all the leaders that we've given you the whole counsel of God and the gospel of John.
to the best of our abilities. Therefore, the ball is in your court. And when your opportunity comes to stand for Christ, it's going to come and go. Right? It's going to come to you and may God grant you spiritual alertness where at that time, you'll be able to stand for Christ and you will do good and you will do right all for His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise You and thank You for the grace given to all of us the cross of Christ. We thank You for enabling us to study the Scriptures and to understand its precepts and granting us the strength to apply it to our lives so that we might grow in Christ-likeness all to Your glory. Lord, may we not boast in our education. May we not boast in the books that we have read, languages that, that we know, sermons that we have heard, conferences that we have attended, things we have done. May we not never boast on mission trips that we have gone on, things that we have given, people we have served, the hardships that we have endured, the tests that we have passed on. But Lord, each of us individually and collectively as a church, May our soul boast be in Christ alone. Crucified Savior, our Lord, our righteousness, our shepherd, our strength, our hope, our redeemer, our God. May He be our only boast. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.